Thank you, Brother Roger. Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of James. And we continue the study this morning from James chapter 3 today. It's really a blessing to see all of you here. This is a tremendous attendance this morning. And I know you're looking forward to the lunch, so I'll try not to speak later than 1 o'clock. Is that all right? <laughs> all right. Now, as we begin this morning, uh, let's have just a brief review. And let me ask you some questions. Is that all right? All right. Who wrote the book of James? All right, James. Now, which James? How many Jameses were there in the, in the New Testament? There are four. Which James was this? Half-brother. How many chapters are there in James? All right. Now, is James, the book of James, a plan of salvation? What is it? It's a plan of service. It's a life of service. There's another section of Scripture that the book of James sounds a little bit like. What section is that? Proverbs and some other section. Ecclesiastes, Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, but something else. Do you remember another section of Scripture? Well, it's, it's, uh, it relates to Romans, but uh, that's not exactly what I was looking for. But however, it certainly relates to Romans in that section where James is talking about faith and works. But do you remember the Lord's, uh, uh, James's older half-brother, all right, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and much of the book of James sounds like that. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is not a plan of salvation. It's a plan of service. James 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 is not a plan of salvation. It's a plan of service. Now, there's one other thing. Would this be true or false? The book of James is a book of systematic theology. All right, it is not a book of systematic theology, that would be false. The book of James is a series of proverbial truths. Okay, Brother John, Brother Roger, you just preached this this morning. <laughs> Before I can get the word out, he just comes right on out with it. That's good. Oh, no, that's good. Go right ahead. Uh, he is a tremendous, prolific teacher. And you know that already. I don't have to tell you. You know it. And he's a powerful, powerful preacher and effective communicator. Now, this, this book of James is, is not a book of uh, theology that, that you could arrange and say, well, this teaches a strong doctrine about eternal security. Or this teaches a strong doctrine about uh, predestination or teaches how to be saved, or teaches about the deity of Jesus. Now, all of these things are referred to. As a matter of fact, the new birth is referred to about twice. The second coming of Jesus is referred to about twice. But basically, the book of James is practical. It is an application of the new birth to our lives in Christ, and it suggests a pattern of lifestyle. The word perfect in the book of James, what does that mean? M mature or striving toward growth or completion. And uh, as we understand that, there are five sections in the book of James. The first, the mature or the perfect person or the, the growing Christian 
and what? What's chapter 1? Suffering. The reason for suffering, the remedy for suffering, the reality of suffering. And then in section, section 2, the mature man or the growing Christian and what? And service. And it relates and suggests several things about our service to Christ. And then the, the chapter today is dealing with the perfect man, the mature man, the growing Christian, and what? And speech has tongue. Let's bow together in prayer before we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray thou wilt guide our thinking this morning and make us clay in the potter's hand. Give us spiritual understanding. Give us spiritual perception. May we understand what God would say to us through these, these verses. And may the Holy Spirit of God take the word and apply it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read the 18 verses of James chapter 3. Let's read it again responsively this morning. My brethren, be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater judgment. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that, we may, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and of birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed by mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place, sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of wine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good life his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envy and strife in your hearts, glory not. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonical. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is 
All right. We're talking about the perfect man and speech, his speech, or the growing Christian, or the Christian that is growing toward maturity and his speech. And I'd like to give you this brief outline of the chapter. And the reason we read the entire chapter through is so we'd be sure to cover the entire chapter, uh, but we may not be able to get through with it. I hope we can. Yesterday, <clears throat> we did not get completely through with chapter 2. I ran out of time. So we may refer back to some of those things today. But let me give you this outline. The outline of chapter 3, number 1, the example of teachers, verse 1. The example of teachers, verse 1. Number 2, the exasperation of the tongue, verses 2 through 13. The exasperation of the tongue. If you really think about it, the tongue, so precious, so powerful, so great, so wonderful, is exasperating. <laughs> we don't know how to control it. And it gets us in trouble. And it causes all kinds of problems. The exasperation of the tongue, verses 3 through 13. And thirdly, the exhortation to truth. The exhortation to truth, verses 14 through 18. The exhortation to truth. Now, first of all, the example of teaching. And I believe in order to begin this, remember that in the original, uh, original canon, in the original texts, there were no chapter divisions. There were no chapter divisions. You'd find the scroll and uh, James, the scroll of James would just be one long scroll. There would not be five chapters. The translators later came along and when they translated it into the various languages, they put in chapter heading or chapter divisions and then verse divisions. And I'm so thankful they did. We would have a difficult time studying the Bible if it weren't for chapters and verses. The, re the major reason the chapter and verses were put in is for study purposes. So we'd be able to know how to study it collectively, individually, and together. All right, now to... to to get into, ch into chapter 3, verse 1, I believe we need to go back to chapter 2 and begin with verse uh, 20, well, really with verse 14. We won't go that far because here he's discussing the relationship between faith and works. And he's talking about the fact that our faith is demonstrated by our works. The only way the outside world will ever know whether we're saved or not, whether Jesus is real in our lives or not, is the way we behave the way our lives relate. And so he gives two illustrations. He gives the illustration of Abraham and the illustration of Rahab. Look in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect? Verse 22 is a very important verse. See how faith wrought with works. In other words, there was a mixture of the two. Faith wrought with works. Now, in order to compare this, hold your finger there and turn to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and uh, look at chapter uh, 4, verse 2. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. The word has to be mixed with faith. We all recognize that. The word of God isn't going to save anybody unless it is mixed with faith. Now, listen to this. Faith 
is not going to save anybody else unless it's mixed with works. Faith won't have any effect on the outside world unless it is mixed with works. And that's what he's saying happened to Abraham. Abraham had faith, but that faith was so real it was mixed with works. And that faith, therefore, was made mature or perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. Now, there is the clearest definition or demonstration of what James is talking about. He is not contradicting Paul. He's not saying, Paul said you're saved by faith, but that's all hogwash. Really, you're saved by works. He's not saying that. He's saying... What Paul taught is true. He's not exactly saying that. I'm saying that. But the focus here is what Paul said is true, that faith, we're saved by faith, by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're saved by faith, but that faith is demonstrated by our works. And the faith and works reveal to others the reality of our faith. Faith alone does not demonstrate anybody, anything to anybody outside unless it is mixed with works. For example, you pray and you believe God's going to answer your prayer. But unless your lifestyle after you pray reveals that you believe God is going to answer that prayer, that faith relates to God, but it won't help anybody outside. Do you understand what I'm saying? It will not relate to other people. Faith, in order, and, and the whole purpose of the book of James is to say, let's win people to Christ. Let's demonstrate. You see, in, in chapter 5, he sums that up. It says, in light, in light of the second coming of Christ, let, let us know that he that converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. The whole purpose of our faith is to have an impact on others and if all our faith is is just some little private thing that we keep inside of us and I've heard people say that haven't you my faith is private well don't talk to me about uh, faith that's just a personal thing sometimes you meet people who say it well if that's all it is it may not be saving faith because saving faith has an outcropping it, it's bubbling, it's bubbling, it's bubbling in my soul. There's laughter and joy since Jesus made me whole. Folks don't understand it, nor can I keep it quiet. It's bubbling, 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 bubbling day and night. And it has to have an outflow into the lives of others, if it's real genuine faith. And so, in this case, that's what he says about Abraham. See then that by works a man is justified, not by faith only. In like manner also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messengers and had sent them one way out another way. For Now, do you understand what she's saying? Here, those spies went into Jericho and Rahab was good to them, hid them in the upper room, let them out over the wall. And the spies said, now you, you put this scarlet thread in the window. And get all your family in here. And when we come back, we're going to march around this city. And there won't anything happen to you if you have that scarlet thread in the window. Now what James is saying is, she had faith to believe what they said. But that faith was not a dead passive faith. It led her to put that scarlet ribbon. It led her to get her family in there. It led her to do something. Always faith is active. It is not passive. 
Now, using that as a backdrop, he moves into chapter 3, verse 1. He says, brethren, my beloved brethren, be not many masters. And the word masters there, a better translation is teacher. Be not many teachers, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or the greater judgment. Abraham was a teacher. Rahab was a teacher by the very fact, the very, very truth that they were men and women of faith. You and I are men and women of faith. You may say, well, I don't teach a Sunday school class. I've, I don't teach them. Some of you teach your children at home, don't you? Some of you who don't have any children teach by the very method of your life. And I think there's an application here. He's talking about the example of teachers. He's still talking about faith. All the way through here, he's talking about how we demonstrate our Christian life. The mature man, the mature person, the growing Christian, and how it affects, how that life affects others. And so, first of all, he's saying the example of teachers demonstrates that we need to grow toward maturity. Now, in a very broad sense, every believer is a teacher. Every Christian is a teacher because God wants us to be so. Around a military post, you find this over and over again because one of the aims of the military is to take men in the raw and train them how to teach others, right or wrong. It's not the military's plan for everybody to remain a buck private all their lives. They want them to start growing and growing and growing and growing so that they can teach others and they can teach this thing, same thing to others. And so it's a, a, a self-continuating situation. And so it is with a Christian life. God, Christ saved us to save others. We're saved, saved to tell others of the man of Galilee. Every believer is a potential teacher. And so the broad sense in which verse 1 makes an application is the fact that every one of us is a teacher. Therefore, we better be very, very careful. Now, there's a second sense in which James is talking here. He's talking about, in this same verse, he's talking about people who have been, who have accepted the responsibility of teaching. Now, uh, the scripture says that one of the qualifications for a, a pastor is that he be apt to teach. One of the qualifications for an, for an elder is that he be apt to teach. That he have that, that gift or that sense in which he can grow into being a teacher. But n n there may be people that are born with that potential. But everybody has to develop that potential. Every believer is born again into the family of God with a potential to teach others, to lead others but not until we accept and develop that potential can we really be what God wants us to be. But then the second sense in which he's talking to people in the same verse about to those who have been put in responsible places as teachers. He says, beloved, be careful about this. Don't everybody rush into a teaching position knowing that you will receive the greater judgment. Now, your Bible may say condemnation. A better translation is greater judgment. And here he's not talking about the condemnation that sends a man to hell. But he's talking about the judgment. We're going to be judged in a more severe way when we've tried to teach others. Now, you know that's true. A person that never tries to influence anybody else 
very seldom is he judged. Very seldom does anybody say anything about him. Just leave him alone. The best way to be left alone is to never try to do anything. The best way to never fail is to never try something. But if you're going to try something, if you're going to accept the role of being placed in a position where you're responsible for leading others, be very, very, very careful because you're going to receive the greater judgment. There's going to people, not only, not only will you face this judgment with the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll be talking about that one night, but you're going to, you're going to face the judgment of others. In, uh, in uh, Matthew 7, 1, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. Why did he even say that? Because we tend to judge each other. <laughs> and while in, in the severe way, we, we are not to judge others, that is, judge their motives, we cannot help but judge their teaching. We cannot help but judge their actions. If I see a man drunk, I'd have to be blind to say, well, I don't know whether I saw him drunk or not. I was at a police station one night, and they, the, I was, I mean, at a, at a jail, and they brought some men that were absolutely out, drunk, into that jail. And they locked them up. Sometime later, I guess two months later, I received a summons. I didn't know what it was all about. I went down there, and I, I, I talked to the, to the judge about it, he said, well, uh, uh, sir, the patrolman said that you were at the jail the night they brought these guys in, and this, the, the, these men are contending they were not drunk. And the only word we have is the patrolman's word. And the patrolman knew you were there, and he wanted to ask if you would testify that they were drunk. <laughs> so I asked for permission to talk to the men first, and I said to those guys, I said specifically one man that was on trial, I said, now I want to tell you, I'm a preacher. I'd like to see you saved. My main purpose is to try to win you to Christ. I like you. I love you. I love your soul. I'm not trying to judge you. Uh, but I happened to be here the night they brought you in, and they've asked me to tell whether I thought you were drunk or not, and, sir, you know you were drunk. He looked at me. <laughs> he, didn't try to, he didn't try to object because he knew I knew that. And so they put me on the witness stand and asked me to just tell what I knew. Well, I knew the man was drunk. You see, I'd have to be blind to say I didn't know that. So, you see, we, we do judge others, but Jesus was talking about don't judge their motives. Here's a man that's up leading the singing, and I say, well, the only reason he's up there is to be seen of everybody. Jesus said, that's wrong. But here's a man that's leading the singing, and the downbeat comes right after the bar, and uh, so we're singing and he just wobbles all around and doesn't ever put the downbeat where it's supposed to be and all that kind of thing. And somebody says, was he a good director? I'll say, well, uh, he didn't put the downbeat where it was supposed to be. Now, is that judging? No, that's observing, see? There's a difference there. And so James is saying in James chapter one, uh, 3, verse 1, don't everybody rush up to be a teacher real quick because you're going to receive the greater judgment. People are going to observe what you're doing. When you get in the front of the line, when you're up front, when you're the leader, when you're a mother, when you're a daddy and you're directing your children, when you're a sergeant, when you're a lieutenant, when you're somebody responsible on the post, when you're a pastor, 
when you're a teacher of a Sunday school class, when you're a secretary, whatever you are, if you're leading anything, people are going to watch you. And James says, don't rush into that position without realizing the weight of the responsibility because you're going to be more severely judged, especially if you lead somebody wrong. A pastor, a preacher, has to constantly stay on his knees, continually, before I preach every time. I have to pray, Lord, guard my lips from presumptuous statements that I say something that would not be in accord with thy will. I have to answer for that. Mothers have to answer for the way they teach their children. Fathers have to answer for the way they teach their families and lead their families. Sunday school teachers have to answer for the way they lead. Leaders in the church have to answer for the way they lead the people. Do they lead them to get behind the pastor because the pastor has the authority from God to direct the work and to go forward with the work? Or are they trying to get off sides and lead it in a wobbling way? And he'll receive the greater judgment. That's what James is saying as he gets into this third chapter. And specifically in the third chapter, he's talking about the tongue. He's saying, watch your tongue, leaders. Watch what you say, how you say it. We used to, years ago, we had a teacher that was teaching adults. And uh, she had a tough time. She had a note of sarcasm in her voice. And it, every time she'd open her mouth, it'd come through like that. Have you ever known somebody like that? It, it wasn't what she said, it was how she said it. And I prayed because she was a pretty good, well, she was a fine person. You know, she was a good teacher and she was a wonderful person. And I knew she didn't mean to be like that. And so I prayed earnestly and the Lord said, uh, there's a need in the primary department. Why don't you ask that teacher to teach primaries? She has some children at home and she loves those kids and she's a good worker. I didn't go to her and say, now look. You're sarcastic, and the way you're talking to those adults, they don't like it, and they, they, they're going to quit your class and all that. I didn't say that because I didn't really know how to get that across to her. Do you know that somebody that has that lifetime habit doesn't really know how to change that quickly? Instead, I said, there's an opening in the primary department, and we really need a committed, dedicated primary leader like you. Could you serve there? Would you pray about it? She prayed about it, and she came back a few days later, and she said, I'll serve there. While she went to work in the primary department, she loved those kids, and they, she had them eating out of her hand. And pretty soon, that note of sarcasm began to disappear out of her voice because she wasn't sarcastic to the kids. She loved them. You know what? Twenty years later, that dear lady is still working with primaries. She became the associational primary director. And you know there, she doesn't work with primaries, she works with adult leaders. And in talking to those adult leaders, that note of sarcasm's gone. Amen. Now, she'd have never gotten it gone if I'd have just hammered away at her and said, now look, you've got to get that out of your earth. She'd say, what do you mean? You know, well, she didn't know how to get it. So what I'm trying to say is, it's not so much what you say, is how you say it. 
And remember, you'll receive the greater judgment. Now, we'll go on. I told you about one o'clock. I notice my time's almost up already, and I'm just in verse one. <laughs> we may have to come into the same chapter tomorrow. But we're going to chapter, uh, verse two now, in, in the section that begins with the exasperation of the tongue. Now, let's notice some things. Look in verse two. For in many things, he's still talking about teachers. He's talking about Christians. He's talking about leaders. For in many things, we all stumble or we offend. If any man offend not in word, the same is a mature man or a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Now, remember, he's telling us to strive toward maturity. He, he's saying you haven't arrived. There's one thing John Dewey, the educator, said that I believe. Most of the things he said I disagree with. But John Dewey said this, it is better to travel than to arrive. <laughs> now you can apply that almost anything except a trip. <laughs> right? But you see, you can apply that in your life. It is better to stay green and grow than get ripe and rot. It is better to travel than to arrive. It is better to look at our lives as though we're, as though we're working and striving and pushing toward maturity than to think that we've gotten there and we've gone as far as we'll ever go. We can just sit down and rest and the rest of the way. He's saying in this chapter, if any man offend not in word, the same as a mature man, a perfect man. Is there anybody here that offends not in word? Have any of us reached that plane of maturity where we don't ever offend anybody with our words? our tongue, the way we talk. Don't get discouraged. Don't curl up in a knot and die and say, well, I guess I'm just an immature Christian. No, just keep on growing. That's the reason James writes this. He says, he says now look, I'm writing this section. I want to remind you right at the beginning, it's going to be hard. What I'm going to say to you is sort of hard. If anybody has already reached the plane of maturity and, and growth so that you don't have to grow any further, you're a mature person. You don't need what I'm going to say. You're already there. But for the rest of us, James is saying, I've got something else to say to you. I've got some more to say. We need to bridle our tongue. Look in verse uh, 3 and 4. He gives two illustrations. He says, Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Everybody knows that. You put a bit in the horse, in the mouth of the horse, and you get on that horse, you pull it this way and it goes that way. Pull it this way and it goes that way. You have complete control of that horse. You pull real hard and the horse stops. Unless something's wrong with his lips. Sometimes a horse will have hard lips or callous lips and the direction doesn't, isn't as effective. But basically, that's the way you break a horse. That's the way you train a horse. You put that, that bit in his mouth and you put a bridle on him, and you've got him under control. An, uh, an animal that's hundreds of times stronger than you are, and yet you can control it. You can control that animal by just a little piece of steel. And then he says, look in verse 4, Behold the ships, which though they are so great and are driven by fierce winds, yet are they turned about with a very small helm wherever the pilot will. You go out in the sea, some of you have been out on the sea, and you come into a terrible storm, and you think that storm, why that storm with all of its fierceness and all of its power and the waves are dashing high, 
and this big, big ship, what can I do? And then you discover that the helmsman knows how to control that ship with just a little turn. Now James says, we can take care of the horses, we can take care of the ships, but most of us can't take care of our tongue. What a tragedy. What a tragedy. All right, in the next few verses, he says four things about the tongue. Beginning in verse 5, Even so the tongue is a little member, and it boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a little member. Number 2, verse 6, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. Number three, verse seven, but for every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed by mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue can no man tame. You say you've tamed your tongue? God says you didn't. No man can tame his tongue. Number nine, verse four, Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men who are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not to be. Doth a fountain send forth us at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives, either of vine figs? So can no fountain yield both salt, water, and flesh and fresh. Now, he said four things about the tongue. He's given two illustrations. And he said, if any of you have already gotten to the point where you can control your tongue, you've already arrived. Now, that's a hypothetical problem and case. Because no matter how old we are, we haven't gotten there yet. There's nobody but what has to sit on the tomb or the grave where he's buried those old things that the tongue used to lash out lest they come back and haunt him again. Peter <clears throat> spent three years with Jesus. He ate with him. He slept where he slept. He traveled where he traveled. He heard all those wonderful teachings. Have you ever said, I wish I could have been a disciple and listened to Jesus and heard him and known him personally? Lots of times I've thought, I wish I could just sit down and talk to Jesus personally and hear some things that he would say. Ask him questions so he could respond to my particular things that I, I want to ask him about. It wouldn't have been any better if I'd been there. How do I know? Look at Peter. Peter spent all that time with him. And he said, now, Lord, everybody else may forsake you, but I never will with a tongue. And Jesus said, uh, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. Oh, Lord, I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And Peter was sincere. He meant that. And then Jesus went on the trial, to the trial. And Peter didn't identify himself. He didn't let, him, let the people know who he was, where he stood, standing around warming his hands at the devil's fire. Peter was put on the spot. Twice he said, I don't know the man. 
the third time he began to curse and swear. Where did all that come from? Where in the world did that cursing and bitterness and swearing, where did that come from? <laughs> it was an old habit that had been there. And he, did, he forgot for a little while and it started seeping out. All that garbage started coming out through his tongue. Now, wisely, the Holy Spirit has given us a whole section of Scripture right here that deals with the very, very heart of our offense to God and man. And James gives two illustrations about how the tongue can be controlled. He says the, the, horse, is, the horse is controlled by a little bit. The ship is controlled by a rudder, the helm, helmsman. And then he says these four things about the tongue. And one of those four things is that no man can tame the tongue. Well, who can tame it? The Holy Spirit of God. And listen about this now. You break a horse, and that horse is broken for life. But... There can come a time in that horse's life when something unusual comes up, something scares him or something makes him nervous, and some of that old wildness may come back, but you probably can still control him if you're in charge, but if you don't have the bit on him, and if you don't have the bridle on him, and if you're not sitting in the saddle, you're not going to control him. So we can give our lives to the Holy Spirit, but if we don't let the Holy Spirit continue to tame our tongue, it won't continue to be tamed. We never arrive. We're always travelers. We never get to a point where we can say, I don't have to tame my tongue anymore. I don't have any problem with my tongue anymore. Be careful when you think you're there. In such an hour as you think not, the tempter comes and just moves in on you and lays your honor in the dust. And that's all the time we have today. We'll begin here tomorrow. Same place, same time, same station. Brother Roger.